Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Kimberly A. Hamlin, an award-winning historian and associate professor in American Studies at Miami University of Ohio. Her book, Free Thinker, Sex, Suffrage, and the Extraordinary Life of Helen Hamilton Gardner, published by W.W. Norton, is the topic of this show. Hamlin has given us a fascinating biography of a little-known suffrage leader. Gardner began her life as Alice Chenoweth. Moving away from her family, she changed her name to create a new version of herself after a public sex scandal with Charles Smart. Living with Smart under the pretense of a legal marriage, she created a respectable public image as a speaker, writer, and reformer. Rejecting the orthodox religion of her upbringing, she challenged the scientific consensus that deemed women as having less mental capacity. She called for reform in the sexual double standard and raising the age of consent for girls. With charm and grace, she developed significant relationship with suffrage and political leaders, including President Wilson. Her behind-the-scenes diplomacy was instrumental in the passage of the 19th Amendment, granting the vote to women. Gardner's free-thinking ideas and political influence were not only pivotal in the history of women's rights, but raised questions about the entrenched gender ideology of her day. Many of the issues that she raised are still relevant. Here is my conversation with Kimberly Hamlin. Now let me introduce you to the author, Kimberly Hamlin. Hello, Kimberly. Hello, Lillian. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Um, I have to tell the audience that Kimberly and I have been working on some projects together, so she's not new to me, but she's maybe new to you. But her her new book, uh, uh Think, uh, free thinker is really interesting, but before we get into it, I want to ask Kimberly to tell us how you got, how, how did you get interested in Helen Hamilton Gardner? How did you get into this project? I became fascinated with Helen Hamilton Gardner when I was working on my first book, From Eve to Evolution, which you also kindly interviewed me about. Um, that book explored how 19th century women used science for feminist purposes. And so I first met um, HHG, as I call her, as I was thumbing through the pages of old popular science monthlies in the basement of the University of Texas Perry Castaneda Library. And HHG wrote to Popular Science Monthly in the 1880s to challenge sexist brain science, um, in particular, the work of this guy, William Hammond, who was a pioneering neurologist and founder of the American Neurological Association. Hammond claimed that he had found um, the 19 distinct ways that women's brains were, quote unquote, naturally inferior to men's. And so HHG wrote in to say, you know, I'm no neurologist, but this makes no rational sense. And what are your findings? And how can you justify this? And so I thought, who is this, you know, ballsy woman who, you know, hasn't had the chance to go to college and has the nerve to write in Popular Science Monthly challenging the findings of this, you know, prominent scientist. 
So I wrote about her in my first book, and then I just became increasingly fascinated with her and kind of kept following her around over the past few years. Now, what's interesting about uh, Gardner is she does not begin her life as Helen Hamilton Gardner. Can you talk about her background, uh, where she came from? Sure. Helen Hamilton Gardner was born Mary Alice Chenoweth, and um, most of the women in her family went by their middle names. So she was known as Alice Chenoweth, and she was born in 1853 in Virginia. And now the Chenoweths of Virginia um, were a prominent family, Um, not quite a first family of Virginia, but a, a first family adjacent So um, both on her mother's and father's side, they were slave owners, um, town settlers, patriarchs, but her father was a minister. He was a circuit-riding Methodist minister, so he did not... um, he did not abide slavery. And when she was one year old, he moved the family to Washington, D.C. so that he could emancipate the people that he held in bondage. And then a year later, he moved everyone to Indiana, where Gardner spent most of her, or sorry, but then she was still Alice Chenoweth, where she spent most of her life growing up. And then um, all of her brothers and her father fought for the Union and all received um, life-threatening or life-ending injuries or illnesses as a result of their Union service. So she grew up as this kind of uh, hearing these stories about, you know, her Virginia ancestors, what it was like to be a Chenoweth of Virginia, but not ever really experiencing that firsthand. What she did experience firsthand was um, her father's deep convictions and his willingness to sacrifice everything for his ideals. And so she took both of those somewhat conflicting or contrasting threads throughout her life. Now he was a reformer, uh, very much I mean, had a reformed spirit that was based rooted in religion. But she ended up uh, rejecting that religion, but she kept that reformed spirit, which exactly. was interesting. Yes. Now, how does she 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 becomes a teacher? How does she become a teacher? And what was her her education like, or her level of education? That's a great question. So uh, when she was growing up in Indiana, she was mostly taught by private tutors and by the books that her older brothers had lying about the house. Um, So one of those influential early books that her older brother Bernard, her favorite brother, had lying about the house was Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason. So that really struck a chord with her. And she always kind of... um, rejected. And she thought this was a common thing among um, the children of ministers (laughs) to kind of reject the religion of their parents. So she and Bernard both rejected religion and became instead free thinkers. So that was her early education. And then um, after her father died and um, her family moved to Missouri and lived on farms, and this was, uh, you know, not the life she had imagined. She watched her sisters bear and bury children. She watched her closest in age sister die. Her sister-in-law died. And I think she thought, you know, this is not for me. This farm life and, you know, um, dangerous pregnancies is not for me. So she moved by herself to Cincinnati to become a teacher. And she attended Cincinnati Normal School for two years here, which was um, the premier teacher training school west of the Allegheny Mountains. Now, she wasn't, she didn't, she wasn't, didn't have a lot of opportunities. It seemed like teaching was the only thing really open to her, and she was really good at it. You're exactly right. Yes. So for uh, white, middle-class, 
um, women in the 19th century, teaching was pretty much the only respectable job you could have. Um, and she was very good at it. She graduated from the Cincinnati Teacher Training School and immediately got a position in Sandusky, Ohio, um, north of Cincinnati. So she moved all by herself to Sandusky, um, rented a room at a boarding house and became a teacher and then was quickly promoted to a principal of the teacher training school in Sandusky, which made her the youngest school principal in Ohio. And she was really proud of that accomplishment and proud of kind of being a self-supporting woman for the rest of her life. Okay. So she's pretty young. She's away from, you know, any family and she's being very successful as an educator. Uh, the administration really looks on her favorably, but then she has something that happens. She meets Charles Smart and Charles Smart seems to be the man who kind of really sets her whole life now becomes sort of set by her experiences with him. Can you talk about who he was, what their relationship was about, what happened there? Yes. Charles Smart was the elected um, commissioner of Ohio public schools. So he was um, about 12 years older than Gardner, and he was very charismatic, very tall, um, very impressive. He was the same age that her oldest brother, Bernard, her favorite brother, would have been had he not died. And as Ohio Commissioner of Common Schools, his job was to travel about the state, checking in on the progress of various schools, making sure everyone was standardized, following all the requirements. But um, Alice Chenoweth's neighbors began to notice that Commissioner Spart spent really too much time in Sandusky. You know, Sandusky is not the biggest city in Ohio. It's not the most um, populous or important. So why, they wondered, is Commissioner Spart coming here so often, they also began to notice that he often came on Fridays and left on Monday mornings when there was no school in session. And um, Alice Chenoweth boarded um, with this woman, the widow Melville, and her other fellow boarders were the brother and sister-in-law of the guy who ran the local paper. So I think this unfortunate circumstance is kind of what led to this affair becoming public. So in the the spring of 1876, Alice Chenoweth is um, suddenly out of favor with local officials and forced to resign. And then in the summer, the local paper prints about the affair and the scandalous behavior of Commissioner Smart. And so this story goes throughout all Ohio newspapers in between July and October of 1876. And eventually the newspapers across the state even print her name as the the young teacher, the young, beautiful teacher that's been having the affair with Charles Smart, who is um, not only the commissioner of schools, but also a married father of two. Wow. So this is, this is this huge scandal at a very young age, really. Uh, she's yeah, she was 23. Yeah. She's very young. Yep. She's out there by herself. She's got this huge scandal. She disappears from the record for about eight years in, in your book. Mm-hmm. And did she consider herself, let's at this point, do you think she considered herself a fallen woman? I think that's precisely the question she was grappling with, um, because that's kind of the immediate issue she pivots to once she reemerges is, who decides who's a fallen woman? Who decides that men face such different sexual standards and such different um, outcomes for having extramarital sex? So I think that's that the aftermath of her affair with Charles Smart is really what sets her on her lifelong trajectory of fighting for women's rights and especially against the sexual double standard. 
um, most for most women and really for her for at least a little while, you know, being a quote unquote fallen woman would have been the end of your life. That's it. You know, who's going to marry you? Who's going to hire you? What is left for you? But Gardner rejects that. You know, she says, says who? <laughs> who made these rules? Who, who, who made these laws that men can do as they please and women are punished? And I think, I think she also gives hints in some of her later writings um, and some of her neighbors in Sandusky said that Charles Smart had told her he was divorced from his wife. And so I also think in some ways she was kind of lured into this um, affair. You know, she didn't really know. Um, so I think she felt like it was a, a very unfair outcome that Charles Smart, you know, kept his job. His name was in the papers and he did suffer, but not to the same extent that she did. Now, she reemerges eight years later. We don't know what happened during that interim time, but uh, she changes her name to Helen Hamilton Gardner and she's still with Smart. Can you talk about that ongoing, that relationship kept going? Yes. So... It's hard to tell from the historical record exactly where she goes in those intervening years. Um, at some point, she moves to Detroit, where Charles Smart was then living, and starts telling people that she's Mrs. Charles Smart, but she's totally not Mrs. Charles Smart. There's no evidence that they um, ever were legally married. And then in um, 1883, Charles Smart transfers. He's now working in the insurance industry, and he transfers to New York City, and she goes with him. And in those intervening years, she becomes fascinated with Robert Ingersoll, the so-called great agnostic and the most popular speaker on the lecture circuit. And I think she begins to say, you know, if Ingersoll can draw crowds of 10,000 or more talking about his agnostic beliefs, why can't I? So when she moves to New York, that's when she changes her name to Helen Hamilton Gardner and she fully re-events and re-emerges uh, with the blessing of Ingersoll. Now, that, now, that's interesting because first we have Charles Smart, who's a very important person in shaping her life. And then you have Ingersoll, another man, a very prominent man who also kind of takes her under his wing and begins to sort of mentor her uh, for this public life that she's going to have. Can you talk a little bit about um, what what did she learn from Ingersoll and, you know, what kind of ideas was she uh, thinking about? Because Ingersoll, was she going to talk about uh, free thought or what was her, what was she being, what was she being shaped into is what I'm asking. Yes. Um, so Ingersoll welcomed her into the free thought movement um, and not only welcomed her, but he really served as her mentor. He encouraged her. So she sent him some early writings where she started writing about she was looking for first causes. You know, why are women considered inferior? Why do women um, why are women held to such different standards when it comes to sex? And she came to believe that the first cause for all of these ideas, what we would call sexism or misogyny, was the Bible. And so that's what she started thinking and writing about. And Ingersoll said, you know, this is great. You must say this in public. So he introduced her first lecture, which guaranteed her press coverage and, you know, ticket a ticket-paying audience, which was very rare for a woman that nobody had ever heard of before, you know, to all of a sudden have access to a ticket paying audience and national press coverage. So we really provided the entree for her um, and he supported her throughout her career. And what she wanted to say, her first speech was called men, women, and gods. And that later becomes the title of her first book, which was a compilation of some of these early lectures. And basically she's going through the Bible and she's saying, okay, like 
let's look and see, you know, what does that, what does the Bible teach about women and how is it that women are told to go to church every Sunday? And why is it that women uphold the church, not just with their beliefs, but also with their labors? And she says, you know, Hey ladies, it's time for us to really think twice about what the Bible teaches us and to leave religion or at least Christianity behind once and for all. Well, what's interesting about her at this point is Ingersoll's uh, support is pretty astounding. She's young. She doesn't, she's not really, she's not that educated. Right. I mean, she's, uh, she doesn't, they don't, he didn't know where she came from. She does, her background's kind of murky. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and he takes her on and her ideas are pretty sophisticated. I just noted how sophisticated her ideas were, which made me wonder what was she reading besides, uh, you know, Thomas Paine. Because it's very advanced sort of philosophical stuff that she's talking about. Yes. So my best guess is that um, when she was living in Detroit, I couldn't find any evidence that she worked because um, the the Detroit city directories from that time period in the late 1870s, early 1880s, listed the names of all school teachers. So I looked for all iterations of her name and couldn't find that she was working anywhere. So I think I have this vision of her going to the Detroit Public Library, you know, this beautiful new central, centrally located just a couple blocks from the hotel where she was living with Charles Smart. And I think she went there and she read and she read. And I think she read the social evolutionary theory that was being, you know, really popularized. So Huxley, Spencer um, in the in the late 19th century. Wow. I, I, I thought that was really impressive, though, for me, too, uh, for a woman who of her background to, to to venture into these really deep areas yes. of science and philosophy and yes. religion. Um, she wrote this, uh, this essay, men, women, and gods. It was very popular. She did really well with that attacking the church teaching and religion. But then she, she thought the answer was going to be science. Yes. You know, science <laughs> will has the answer. Science is going to be able to refute all this, but then she gets disappointed when she realizes that science was being used also to show that women were inferior. Can you talk about that disillusionment with science uh, when she first kind of really looked at it? Exactly. So she came to think that, you know, and a lot of this was kind of characteristic of a lot of free thinkers who, you know, really championed evolutionary theory in the 1870s, 1880s. And she was right uh, in line with that with that thinking that this is what's going to kind of disprove all these biblical stories. Science is the epitome of reason, but then she started um, following the debates about could women go to college or not, and she too tried to enroll in Columbia uh, before women were allowed to enroll. And so here in these debates, the leading scientists, the leading doctors, were saying, "Oh, you know, women can't go to college." First, they said it's because their menstruation was too taxing, and then when Mary Putnam Jacoby, a pioneering female physician, disproved that theory. Then these same leading male doctors and scientists said, oh, women are, can't go to college or pursue careers because their brains are inferior. So that's where I first met HHG, as I mentioned at the outset. And that's where she becomes kind of disheartened with science. But um, interestingly, she doesn't come to distrust all science, um, only, only what she refers to as biased science, because in seeking to refute William Hammond, you know, Gardner doesn't have access to brains, obviously, or laboratories on her own since she's not herself, you know, a university trained scientist. So what she does is she prepares a list of questions and submits them to the leading neurologist in New York City. And she ends up becoming friends 
with this guy, Dr. Edward Spitzka, who is another leading neurologist and brain anatomist. And even though he doesn't support women's rights really in any way, shape or form, he's much more what we would consider, you know, a modern scientist who had, you know, international journals, scales, microscopes, all sorts of things in his lab. And because he was so committed to kind of uncovering the truth, she believed that he didn't let what she called hereditary bias color his results. So she used Spitzka and what Spitzka told her to refute Hammond. So she kind of felt like she was fighting sexist science with what she would have considered, you know, real science. So she did still trust science, but just depending on the, the practitioner. Right. Now she, uh, she, she takes up an issue, uh, which was the consent, uh, issue for girls, sexual consent. And, um, she picks, I guess she felt like she needed to pick something to champion like her platform. Yes. Yeah. What does she do with that? And talk about that a little bit. Well, I think, so I think what happens, um, in her kind of intellectual reform trajectory is she, what she really wants to talk about is sex and heterosexual relations. Cause I think in her personal life and in the lives of the women, she knows, she sees that, you know, when push comes to shove, it's the sexual double standard that perpetually kind of keeps women um, in, in their second class status. And so she turns to fiction after writing many nonfiction essays and books because she wants to talk more openly about sex and the lim- women's limited choices therein. And she hones in on this issue of the age of consent. And this was an issue um, in the 1880s and 1890s that mostly temperance activists were working to, to change. And so, and this is a th- something that I really want to keep exploring in my next book because it's the It was um, one of the most interesting things I found in my research. So in 1890, and I want people, I want to try to say this slow because it's so shocking, but in 1890, the age of sexual consent for girls was 12 or younger in 38 states. In Delaware, it was seven. So this means, yeah, I mean, it is, so it was mostly 12 or 10. That was the standard. And so this means that you know, if you tried to charge a grown man with a crime for having sex with a 10 year old girl, he could legitimately, you know, go to the police station and say, she consented. This 10 year old, eight year old, seven year old girl consented. And this, you know, horrifying reality really galvanized um, temperance workers and also um, Helen Hamilton Gardner to really try to. Um, it, you know, raise public awareness of the issue. And that's what Gardner tried to do with her two novels. Is this your son, my Lord, and pray you, sir, whose daughter is talk about sex and what it was like for young women who had been, you know, either raped or kind of lured into affairs with older men with, you know, promising things and then what their lives were like afterward. And so now that she, was her signature reform. Yep. Now she took up she took up uh, themes these themes in this in this fiction, and what's interesting is that she wasn't writing fiction just to you know write be a literary person. She was really it was a, a vehicle for her message. So and it's also about lived philosophy. It was a way for her to sh- illustrate her philosophy through her characters. Yes, it, which is it, it actually a very feminist move to use real life experience as the way that feminism emerges. Uh, it's not an abstraction. It's based mm-hmm. on how, you know, things that happen to real women in, in yes. real situations. 
So that I thought that she was she was very sophisticated, and mm-hmm. I, I was very impressed with how sophisticated she was. The other thing I want to go back to something when you were talking about science. She decided to donate her brain to science and persuaded apparently Elizabeth King <laughs> Stanton yes. to do the same. Yes. Yep. Talk about that. That's interesting. So in her brain research, she was um, shocked to discover, first of all, that William Hammond and others who made claims about the natural inferiority of women's brains really had no solid evidence um, to back up their claims. That was kind of her first shocking revelation. But her second shocking revelation was that when scientists studied male brains, they usually had at their disposal the brains of, you know, leading thinkers, you know, kings, statesmen, men who donated their brains to science to say basically, hey, look how awesome I am. Why don't you dissect my brain to figure out, you know, precisely how awesome I am? And they compared these brains of eminent great men with the brains of what Gardner called female hospital pickups, women who had died anonymously in insane asylums, in prison, on the streets. And so she said basically, you know, okay, even if there are differences between male brains and female brains, we'll never know because these samples are so wholly different. So she um, was already good friends with Elizabeth Cady Stanton from the Free Thought Movement, And Stanton invited her to give her speech, Sex and Brain, um, in 1888 before the International Council of Women, which was the first um, international gathering of women's rights leaders to be held in the U.S. It was in D.C. And so during the speech, Gardner, you know, goes through all of her scientific findings. And then she kind of ends with, hey, ladies, you know, what we need to do is even the scales and we need to donate our own brains, especially, you know, those of us who are educated. And she says, I think I know where some of them might be found. And then she kind of name drops several of the women in the audience. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton heeded the call and signed her brain bequest form um, to Cornell, which at the time had the the world's leading brain connection collection called the Burt Wilder Brain Collection. So uh, Stanton did sign the form saying, yep, when I go, please take my brain and study it for science. Now, she was uh, so Gardner here is now a well-known, popular uh, speaker. She's known in the New Thought mo- movement. She's known in she's beginning to be known among the suffrage movement. What how, was she making a living doing this? And what was her relationship? She's still with Charles Smart. What's her relationship with Smart? So. Those are two of the most fascinating questions. Was she making a living and what was her relationship with SMART? Once she moved to New York City with SMART, they sort of still traveled around for a couple more years in the mid-1880s, but they settle in New York by 1886 and they present themselves and tell everyone that they are married. At this point, um, Charles SMART is working for Equitable Life Assurance Society, a, a nationwide leader in the insurance industry. But as far as I can tell, he does not make too good of a living. He rarely goes to the office. He's often sick. He's constantly in the two-bedroom apartment that he and Gardner share, kind of pestering her and bothering her about the day, she says. Um, So his income seems very unsteady. Well, she's constantly hustling. So, for example... um, you know, between 1890 and 1894, she publishes at least three books, countless essays. She's constantly speaking. You know, she's hustling, trying to make ends meet. And I think she's exhausted by it, but she has little choice. So I I think she supports herself. And as far as her letters and diaries reveal, she also supports 
smart during this time, though he may have brought in some limited um, commissions from his work in the insurance industry. So her life with him was they lived as husband and wife, though she continued to travel um, sometimes with him and sometimes by herself, and they were not, in fact, married. So do you think that she believed they were, or do you think that she just told herself that they were legally married? You know, or did I thought... she just think that legal marriage was not that important and the fact that she loved him and was with him, that that was enough? I've thought a lot about that. Um, there are references in some later documents um, to bogus divorce papers that he claimed that she claimed he had shown her. So I think she did. I think she thought he was divorced from his first wife. I don't think she knew he was really married this whole entire time to another woman. But I don't think she thought she was married to him because there's no evidence to suggest that she was. And and later after Smart dies, there's this um, protracted probate struggle between HHG and Smart's actual wife. And I think that if she thought she was really married to him, that would have been the time where you say, oh, here's my marriage certificate, or you know, here's some proof that he and I were legally married or that I thought I was legally married to him. And she never says that. Instead, she leaves the country. <laughs> so I, I don't think she thought she was legally married to or married to him in any way. Now, and, and, and Smart was actually maintaining, it sounds like he was maintaining another, another household in another state. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wife <laughs> and his children. So he was technically, yeah, he was, he was really double dealing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so he, he dies and she marries a uh, Colonel Selden Day. Why was she attracted to, to the Colonel? Colonel Selden Day was a Civil War hero and lifelong um, career army officer. And I think he represented stability for her. I also think that he maybe reminded her of her father. He claimed to have um, participated in some battles. He didn't say, I never saw evidence that he said for sure he knew her father, but he was, he fought in the West Virginia arena that her father um, kind of participated in as a scout. So I think there was some familiarity there. Um, And I think he represented stability. You know, he was a solid orderly man um, who, and also he had, um, what she thought was a steady income. She was a little bit surprised to find it wasn't as much as she hoped it would be, but I think he represented some stability at a time where she craved um, belonging and safety. And it seems also to me along the way that she was also trying to build up a reputation of being respectable. Mm -hmm. Her ideas were very radical she still wanted to be respectable. She wanted to be, you know, a wife and and have sort of the allure of, of, of domesticity that, you know, that she had a husband who mm-hmm. supported her in some way. Uh, so that's what I I noticed. Yes. She really, really worked at crafting this uh, sort of respectable image, which actually helped her uh, become a public figure because she could talk very radical and say really radical ideas, but she could also put forward the fact that maybe somehow she had a very conventional life, which we know it wasn't, but it looked like it did, she did. Exactly. The, I, even before she married the Colonel, you know, she would tell people she was married to Charles Smart and that made her seem much more respectable. So that gave her the, the cover to travel about the country and talk about the sexual double standard or say shocking things about the spread of syphilis and question, you know, uh, 
sex roles in marriage or question motherhood, the sanctity of motherhood. So yes, you're exactly right. She really used that and cultivated that image, not just of her own marriage, but also her like traditional femininity. So news accounts often reported, you know, on how beautiful she was or how well dressed she was. So she cloaked her radical ideas in a kind of conventional appearance. Okay, so now we're going to talk about a lot of the portion of your book, uh, particularly the last half. You talk a lot about the suffrage movement, the, the, all the different factions of that movement, her relationship to those to that movement with Elizabeth K. Stanton, her relationship to Alice <clears throat> Paul and and Carrie Chapman Cat, all these uh, different elements. Uh, so the suffrage movement from the beginning was sort of kind of uh, connected to this purity and temperance movement, which she rejected. Can you talk about her, 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 yeah, I guess rejection of the purity and temperance movement and what she thought was the problem there? Yes. So, um, Gardner is a, a sort of late bloomer when it comes to suffrage. She always supported women's right to vote, but she was not active in any suffrage causes um, until 1910 when she settles in Washington, D.C. Previously, she was close friends with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and she worked with Stanton on um, Stanton's Woman's Bible. Gardner was on the revising committee for that, and this was really a divisive project within the suffrage movement. And it kind of cemented Stanton's ouster from formal suffrage activities. So there were two rival suffrage groups um, for the second half of the 19th century, the American Women's Suffrage Association and the National Women's Suffrage Association. And these two groups merged in 1890 and also joined forces with the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And Gardner um, opposed this merger and so did Stanton. And Stanton and Gardner kind of Stanton, after that merger, called herself a freelance with regard to women's organizations. She wanted to keep, you know, kind of her independence to say and do as she pleased. And Gardner was on Team Stanton. So she did not join um, the newly reunited NASA, National American Women's Suffrage Association, and instead um, kept writing and lecturing and doing her own thing. So she yeah, opposed... Oh, and she also opposed not just Christianity, the the C in Women's Christian Temperance Union, but she also opposed the T. She thought that um, people should be free to make their own mistakes and to do as they please. So she did not ever support temperance either. Right, and I think we have to really understand for the for the audience that uh, Stan's Women's Bible was a really radical rereading of uh, you know traditional Christian scripture. Mm-hmm. She uh, offered, and uh, and her committee offered commentary on all those all the passages that referred to women, and it was so it was pretty shocking to the very conservative suffragettes who really wanted a part of the strategy was, of course, we want to show that we are good Christian women. We're asking for the vote, but we are not, you know, overthrowing the sanctity of the home or Christianity, because if they were too radical, they would the fear that they would not be heard. Exactly. So NASA even officially censors the woman's Bible, um, censures, sorry, the woman's Bible um, at their 1896 convention. So they want nothing to do with it. So now she, when, when she gets involved in the organization of uh, the organization of NASA, she, she also has to make some choices beforehand between um the, the the women who are working with Alice Paul and pa- Alice's Paul's uh, 
uh, approach to suffrage in Carrie Chapman Katz's approach to suffrage. And she works with Alice Paul for a while, but apparently she just comes to a point where she goes, you know, this is not the way to go because Alice Paul is pretty radical in her tactics. Even though they both, they want the same thing, they want, they're going to, they have different ways of trying to get it. Can you talk about Alice Paul? I thought, you know, that she's a really interesting person. Yes, exactly. So Alice Paul um, spends time in England among the British suffragettes who are more radical, more protest oriented, um, and more partisan. And she returns to the States in 1912 and she shows up at the Nassau Convention and she says, hey, you know, enough with these polite petitions, enough with, you know, once a year annual perfunctory testimonies before Congress. Let It's time to mix things up, she says. So she says, I've got this great idea, Nasa. Why don't you let me take charge of your more or less moribund congressional committee here in Washington, and I'll retool it, and I'll put together a huge procession, a huge march that will coincide with the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson in March 1913. So she proposes this in December of 1912. Nassau is kind of like, oh, I don't know, Alice Paul, we like your energy, you're obviously brilliant, but this seems, you know, maybe too much, but she convinces Nassau to do it. And, you know, like the second person she talks to in D.C. is Helen Hamilton Gardner. Helen Hamilton Gardner has since settled into her new home on Lamont Avenue, where she lives right next door to the Speaker of the House. And she's kind of established herself as um, what the what Nassau calls their most effective Washington volunteer. So Gardner says, great idea, Alice Paul, let's do it. And Gardner uses her charm, her husband's military connections, because you know, in DC in the 1910s, her husband as a Civil War hero and lifelong army guy, you know, knows many people in power, many members of Congress, many high-ranking officials. So she uses her charms and her connections to get all the permissions for the 1913 parade. And at first she works really closely with Alice Paul. I think they like each other as kind of fellow firebrands. Um, but eventually that relationship really sours as Alice Paul turns increasingly towards protest tactics, and especially as Alice Paul says that um, her stance and the stance of what first is the Congressional Union and later the National Women's Party, that the stance of that group will be to um, work against, to campaign against all Democrats. This was a strategy she borrowed from the British movement that didn't 100% make sense in the American context because of our mostly two-party system. So Alice Paul campaigned against all Democrats, even Democrats who supported the federal amendment, because after 19, between 1912 and the 1918 election, Democrats controlled the White House and both houses of Congress. So to Alice Paul, she wanted to make a statement that um, the party in power needed to really champion the, the federal amendment. So she even would campaign against suffrage allies, which to Gardner and her colleagues in Nassau, which was very nonpartisan, this made no sense and continually thwarted their efforts. So there are many times where Gardner would think she was on the brink of, for example, creating the House Committee on Women's Suffrage, only to be only to find out that, you know, a couple members decided they could never vote for it because Alice Paul had, you know, protested this or said this or campaigned against them. Yeah, and it's really interesting there that the the people in Congress uh, and even President Wilson that she's getting to know is completely confused about all these different factions. Yes. They think they think the suffrage movement is yes. just one thing, and so 
Alice yes. Paul comes in there, you know, kind of a bull in a china china shop. Yes. And then Gardner is trying to present a different tactic, a different way, a little bit more, uh, you know, endearing, a little bit more, you know, polite. And it, it, she's constantly having to fight the things that Alice Paul is doing or the impression that Alice Paul is casting on the whole movement. Yes. And that right there was really the drama of that because uh, Gardner is becoming, became the suffrage diplomat. Yes. <laughs> she develops this, and this is her strength. I mean, I, this is what I saw. She was just an amazing influencer, mm-hmm. an amazing ability to get in with people and talk to them persuasively to get them on her team. Talk about her relationship with Wilson and how that developed. And also yes. with Wilson's secretary. Yes, Tumulti. Tumulti. Yes. Joseph Tumulti. So, and, you know, this is one of my favorite parts of the book and was one of my favorite parts of the research. You know, I went to the Woodrow Wilson collection at the Library of Congress and also the papers of his wife and his top staff. And Gardner is in those papers more than any other woman except for um, Wilson's wife and daughter. So she's everywhere. And what she does is she uses Wilson's antipathy to Alice Paul to charm her way inside. So Gardner spent the winter of 1915-1916 in California where Selden Day's family had some property. She comes back to D.C. in the uh, late spring, early summer of 1916 And all of her D.C. lady friends say, oh, my gosh, you will not believe the shenanigans that Alice Paul is up to. This was before Alice Paul started protesting at the White House, but she was um, what people called heckling the president at his public events and his speeches following him around. And Gardner said, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe it. This is so disheartening. So she sits down and she writes, um, not Wilson himself, but his chief of staff, Joseph Tumulty this letter. And she says, you know, Hey, I'm writing to introduce myself since you may never have heard of me. Here's my calling card. Here's a list of all my friends in Congress. And, you know, I want you to know that not all suffragists are like Alice Paul. And she says, I represent Nassau, the national American Women's suffrage association. We're nonpartisan. We're, you know, working together with you. Let us work together. And then she sends also this memo that kind of outlines the differences between Alice Paul's group and Nassau. And this was a revelation at the white house, which is shocking to think because here Wilson's already been president for more than three years. And every day, you know, he gets more correspondence from various factions of suffragists. So even in the summer of 1916, he still couldn't tell who was who. (laughs) And Gardner's memo, like delineating the differences between suffrage groups was so um, helpful that later on that summer, a congressman inserted it into the congressional record to also help members of Congress figure out, you know, the difference between all these different uppity ladies. (laughs) Well, I mean, Alice Paul was just amazing to me because she kept, she was insistent, she was demanding, she would just, you know, demand to see the president, demand to bring 300 women to the White House. I mean, demand, demand, demand. And Gardner did not have that tactic. She was extremely personable and accommodating. And what don't you understand? Let me explain it to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, it's really striking. I was just really impressed with her uh, finesse. She had wonderful finesse, wonderful charisma. So that first Tumulti letter that she sent in July of 1916, she wrote in um, handwriting PS 
does Mrs. Wilson, and this is the second Mrs. Wilson who'd only been Mrs. Wilson for a few months. She said, you know, does the first lady accept visitors? If so, I would love to call. And so then someone writes in pencil next door to that on the letter, 1015 tomorrow. So Gardner is already in the White House the very next day having tea with Mrs. Wilson. Now, Mrs. Wilson did not support the federal amendment, but she loved HHG. So HHG <laughs> is so smart. You know, she's befriending Wilson's top staff. She's befriending the wife. And soon enough, she's befriending Wilson himself. So she charms her way in. And over the next few years, you know, is a welcome daily presence. She's physically there. She's calling all the time. She's writing letters. She's sending apricots from her garden. She, um, yes, she used to. The thing interesting about her, though, at this point, when she's at the height of her influence, Mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't have an official role. She doesn't have an official, she's not an organizational leader, you know, like we think, you know what I'm saying? She's not an organizer. She's not an official leader of the organization. She's just kind of working the back channels. She's in the back, you know, back yes. of the stage. And yep. uh, yeah, that's what I, I, I think that the, we don't really understand the power of influence just mm-hmm. on its own without having to have organizational power. And this sort of irked Gardner. I think she wanted to be, you know, on the Nassau letterhead. She eventually does become a the vice named as a vice president. So she gets the spot on the letterhead. But at first, when she charms her way in the White House, she doesn't have that. Um, although her colleagues in the in Nassau refer to her as their diplomatic corps, as you mentioned, and even Carrie Chapman Cat did not generally approach President Wilson without first going through Gardner. But it, was Gardner uncompensated at this point here? Oh, yeah. She never was paid for her Nassau work. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So she's living off the husband's um, army Mm -hmm. pension. Okay. So let's talk about what are some of the arguments uh, against suffrage that Gardner and her colleagues had to counter? This was another really revelatory part of the research for me because I had done work, you know, earlier in the suffrage movement and where I found, you know, like 19th century anti-suffrage arguments are, you know, women are fundamentally irrational. They can't vote. Women voting will destroy the family, things of that nature. But by the time Gardner becomes an influencer in the 1910s, and especially by the time that Congress begins seriously deliberating the 19th Amendment, not not like their annual once a year hearings that they had kind of from the 1880s on, but when they're seriously, like when it's seriously um, discussed on the floor, people aren't making those arguments anymore. No one's saying women can't vote because they're fundamentally irrational or it will destroy the family. People, and by people, I mean members of Congress, <laughs> are pretty much only talking about the 15th Amendment and the, their fears of the growth of the Black electorate. So in the 1910s, and especially 1917, 1918, 1919, as the 19th Amendment is working its way through both chambers of Congress, that is the number one objection by far, that not only will the 19th Amendment, um, on paper anyway, enfranchise Black women, especially in the South, people are concerned about states where the Black population outnumbers the white, and members of Congress have this very like visceral, um, overstated fear that the 19th Amendment is too reminiscent of the 15th, which enfranchised Black men after the Civil War, but had not been enforced in the South since 1877. So congressmen fear that the 19th Amendment will somehow compel the federal government to finally enforce the 15th, which it had never really done. 
So it's an issue of race at this point instead of a social or yes. a social uh, yes. argument. Now, in terms of race, though, the the suffrage movement, and that's all, they they kind of distanced themselves from the black women vote. They didn't yes. really want to bring it up. They wanted to kind of like paper over it and just, oh, don't think yes. about that. Think about the white women who are going to vote. Yes. Uh, they were trying to distract uh, yes. legislators for, from the black women. So... That so that right there was a, a really a big racial issue within the movement because there were black women working for the vote. There were countless black women working for the vote, um, and but the thing is, they often had to work for the vote in the in separate organizations because they were not generally welcomed in NASA or in Alice Paul's National Women's Party. So to find black women advocating for the vote, we have to expand our search in the archives to look at black women's organizations, um, the national association of colored women, for example, church groups and the NAACP. So black women from, you know, day one were very much fighting for the 19th amendment, but also for the 15th amendment to be upheld because they knew that these two amendments, you know, go hand in hand and that for them to vote, they would need for both to be enforced. Um, but the woman of Nassau tried to pretend like the 19th Amendment didn't have anything to do with the 15th. So while some leaders, you know, may privately have held more progressive views about race and may privately have said, you know, that they supported Black women voting, that was not the official position of Nassau. To the contrary, Nassau basically said and signaled to members of Congress that you know, don't worry about the 15th Amendment. We really don't care. You can keep, you know, disfranchising Black women at the state level, just like you have done to Black men, just past the 19th Amendment. Right. So, okay. So now uh, we know what happened with the the rest of the story, and you you talk about all the different challenges to getting the the amendment passed. So now I want to kind of retreat from the political and get back to Gardner as an individual. Okay. It seemed to me throughout the whole book, that she spent a lot of her critical uh, critical moments in her personal life alone, and that she did not have any really close women friends. Now, she worked with women, but she didn't really have any intimate friends. Well, I think um, there was a few women friends that really stand out to me, and this may in part be a function of the fact that in her will – HHG um, commanded that her executors destroy all of her remaining correspondence. Um, so, oh. <laughs> so who knows what um, secrets and treasures might have been held in those letters that she herself kept. But in the letters that I found, she has really close ties um, to a few women in particular. So first is Stanton. She loved Stanton and considered Stanton her best friend. Um for many years until Stanton died in 1902. And she was super hurt when Stanton's daughter, Harriet Stanton Blatch, um, uninvited Gardner. Basically, Gardner was scheduled to speak at Stanton's New York City memorial service. And Gardner got uninvited because largely this controversy about the brain. And Gardner held that hurt for years, like many, many years. Um, And then she has this other friend, Mary Phillips, from when she lived in New York. And Mary Phillips... Um, owned a house that was sort of like a boarding house. And I think she functioned kind of like a fixer for many women in HHG's circle. Adelaide Johnson, the sculptor, also occasionally lived with Mary Phillips. Um, so Mary Phillips was um, HHG's confidant in the years after, um, in the years when Charles Smart was dying and then when he did die in 1901. She helped sort out the probate mess 
and was very much Gardner's confidant. Um, and then in later life, Gardner was very close friends with Maud Wood Park. And they have some really beautiful letters back and forth that you could just, and Maud Wood Park also, by the way, had a secret husband. So I think they maybe bonded <laughs> over that. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, Maud Wood Park's husband was legal, but he was secret. Um, but I think they bonded over some sort of life is complicated <laughs> conviction. But their letters together, you know, they were very warm and affectionate. And when Gardner finally did get a job and make some money, she wanted to send uh, Maud Wood Park, you know, fancy silk scarves or a lovely evening gown, you know, kind of treats that she couldn't have previously afforded. And they had a really warm friendship. So I think um, Gardner didn't necessarily have like a one steady best friend throughout her life, but she had kind of a series of female confidants and also of male... um, I don't male champions kind of like first there was Ingersoll then there was Spitzka and then there was Wilson and Tumulty who functioned okay. as like big, big brothers almost to her. So what, what issues that uh, Gardner brought up are still re- relevant today? I think so many. I mean, she, one thing I love about her is she's so modern. Um, I think so f- first and foremost, I think she's, a a suffragist for the me too generation, because through her life and work, we can see very vividly the connections between bodily autonomy and political autonomy that women have always fought for access um, to the vote and for political power in large part so that they have a say over what happens to their own bodies, be it the right to say no to their husbands, be it an end to the sexual double standard or raising the age of consent. Women have sought access to politics in large part to control what happens to their bodies. And Gardner really makes that plain. Second, so, oh, go ahead. so she's very modern. So the takeaway for the reader, you could sum up as pay attention to Gardner because she reveals the linkages between sexual autonomy and political autonomy and the longstanding um, fight to prove the point that women are people. <laughs> As Gardner said, with brains and bodies that are sacredly their own. That's what Gardner said. (laughs) Thank you, Kimberly, uh, for a fascinating interview. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Study. This is your host, Lillian Barger.